1 John chapter 5. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can turn to John, 1 John chapter 5, starting with verse 6 this morning. As you're turning there, let me recap a little bit of where we've come from, how we got to here. Last week we talked about the necessity of being born of God. A person can only believe if they have been born of God. John said, whoever believes, it was from our text in verses 1 through 5 last week, whoever believes, believes is a continuing and ongoing action. It's not a one-time singular point in history. It is an ongoing, continuous action. And we as Christians, we love God and his people best when we do what God says. When we obey him, we actually love one another well. This is an expression of worship. And as John mentioned in the text last week, his laws, his commands, they're not burdensome for the believer. We looked at a a psalm where David says they're like honey from a honeycomb. They bring us life. They bring us joy. They bring us delight. And then John pointed out in verses 1 through 5 the direct relationship between obedience and belief, obedience and faith. They go together. You can't obey and love God if you don't believe God. And you can't believe unless you have been born of God, unless you've been born again. So today... I want us to look at verses 6 through 12. And probably in most of your Bibles, and you can look down, there's a heading over this section that says probably something like the testimony concerning God's Son or the Son of God, something along those lines. Now, this makes sense if you think to John's audience, and we need to do that. John's audience contained, I've mentioned this several times, people that were genuinely saved, that genuinely were born again, But it also contained people who thought they were saved, but really denied their salvation by their lack of faith and lack of obedience. So both of these people are who John is writing to. Some of those who didn't genuinely believe God were then teaching false things to the Christians in the church. James covered a little bit of this. James David did back in chapter 4 when he talked about overcoming deception. But they were... telling people that God's spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, but then he left Jesus at the cross before his death. And this was a a theory that people were saying. And so John is writing against this here in this text. These people, they couldn't imagine creator God becoming so low that he could be nailed to a human cross. And so they rejected the idea of Jesus' divinity. It's likely that John had this deception in mind When he wrote this. Now think about the idea of a testimony. How many of you guys know the show Matlock? Anybody? My wife and I fell in love watching Matlock in college. I know. It says a lot about us, but we still catch it sometimes and reminisce. But in that show, it's a courtroom setting. Matlock is is the guy and uh, in his sweet gray suit. He is trying to talk to the people on the witness stand and get their testimony to prove his point. You know what a a person who does this is. They're giving their testimony. They're, They're testifying something that they experienced, something that they saw, and they're giving validity to it. So here, John is most definitely making a case, building a case for the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus really is the Son of God. 
And he's going to call on several witnesses, just like Matlock would. He's going to call on several of them to testify to the truth that Jesus is really the Son of God. So look at the text with me. Let's read it together, and then I'll say a quick word of prayer. Chapter 5, 1 John, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that has been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he's not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever, be- whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for making it simple again. We, we want life. We want to be free. We want to have peace. We want to experience real life. You've told us how that happens, by having the Son. But you've also told us what happens if we do not have the Son. We cannot have life. And so, Lord, I pray, I plead with you this morning that you bring life where ears are closed and maybe have been turned off for a long time. I pray that you would open them to hear your words, not mine, to hear yours, and that you would do the changing this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 6, there is a hotly debated, it's not hotly debated anymore at least, um, but there is a debate on what the water and the blood mean. So let me try to explain what this, I think, looks like for us. John, with the water and the blood, he returns to this idea, this theme that he started at the beginning of of the book, that there is a real historical foundation for people, you and I, to trust in Christ. If you want to flip back to the first chapter, verses 1 through 3, the emphasis there, as you thumb through it, was clear. It was what was seen, what was heard, what they could physically put their eyes on, they could see, what they touched and handled. John was talking about real stuff, real people. Real things. So just like water and blood are very real, even now, so was the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So with the idea of water in mind, there's a, there's a strong evidence to understand water here in the context of Jesus' physical baptism. His baptism was, was a big deal. And if you look through the Gospels, not every story is in every Gospel, but his baptism is. It's in all four Gospels. It's, it's accounted for. You know the story. Jesus goes. John is baptizing people. And Jesus goes to John and, and asks him to baptize him. When John does it, he puts Jesus down into the water. The text says when Jesus came up out of the water. That's just part of the reason why our mode for baptism practice is immersion here. When Jesus came up out of the water, you know what happens. Uh, the, uh, the Spirit of God, as in the form of a dove, came down on him. Visibly, people saw it. And what was said, audibly, a voice from heaven came saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So big stuff. That's an important part of Jesus' story. But it makes us wonder, and maybe you've had this thought before, why did Jesus get baptized? Why? What was the point? Baptism is a symbol 
of a person recognizing their sin, repenting of it, and then trusting in Christ as Savior. The, the old is gone. It's washed away. The new has come. That's what this pictures, but Jesus never sinned. So what was the purpose of his baptism? Was his nature actually corrupt? No. What business did he have being baptized if he didn't sin? If he didn't need forgiveness? If he didn't need to demonstrate new life? The, the simplest thing I could come up with was this, just this idea that Jesus identified himself with the people that he came to save. Isn't that the story of the incarnation of Christ's birth that we're getting ready to celebrate? Jesus identifying with the people he came to save. And a voice from heaven at his baptism, God's own voice was audibly heard confirming this, confirming Jesus' divinity. So the water that Jesus is, or that John rather is referencing here, is Jesus' water baptism. And it testified to the truth that he really is God's son, that he is truly divine, the son of God. Now, the blood, so if the water wasn't enough, if the evidence of Christ's baptism and the, the demonstration of God and his own audible voice wasn't enough, the cross also testifies to this truth. That's what's meant by the blood here. Jesus' earthly ministry began, started at his baptism, and it ended at the cross. With, with, his, with his own words, he says, it is finished. So from his baptism to the blood he shed on the cross, Jesus did something only he could do. He, he did something on the cross that only divine blood could do. It satisfied the justice of God. It satisfied in full the wrath of God on sin. Only divine blood could do that. Now, by faith, believers, you and I, we've been justified through that blood before God. Jesus has come to be our propitiation. We talked about that a few weeks ago. His divine death atoned for the sin of every person who believes. The blood testified to the truth that Jesus is really God in the flesh. And it was made evident at his death. Think with me for a moment about the events that happened immediately after Christ breathed his last. You probably remember from the gospel accounts, there was darkness that came over the land for like three hours. It was the middle of the day. This was an abnormal thing. Darkness came over the land. There was a great earthquake. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And even people who had been dead came up out of their graves and walked around, which was giving kind of a precursor to the resurrection that was to come. This was... You couldn't mistake that day for any other crucifixion day. People have been killed on the cross all the time in Roman history, but nothing compared to this day. This was different. I think we could even add, not that I would add to Scripture, but add to John's list of witnesses here that he brings up. We could put the Roman soldier that was at the cross on the stand. We have his testimony. He looked at all of these things. He observed it all. And what was the conclusion that he came to? Surely this man is the son of God. When Jesus came by water, it was his way of saying, I'm one of you in the flesh. 
When he came by blood, it was to stand in our place as a guilty sinner and to take the punishment that your sin deserved, that my sin deserved. Jesus, think about this. Jesus was just as much the son of God on the cross as he was at his baptism. When the dove descended and it was obvious that he was the son of God by father's audible voice, he was just as much God on the cross. Water and blood, John says, bear witness to it. And then in the end of verse 6 of 1 John chapter 5, the Spirit agrees, John says, because he's the truth. Because he is, the Spirit is the truth. Now this is how John and Jesus consistently describe the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, especially in John's Gospel. The Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth. In John fifteen twenty six. The spirit of the truth, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, Jesus said. John refers to these three things, water, blood, and spirit, in verses 7 and 8. And he lists the spirit first in in that list, I think because this time the spirit actually testifies to us through the water and the blood. Not only is he the truth confirming those things are true, but through those elements, through Jesus' baptism and through Jesus' blood being shed on the cross, the Spirit testifies truth to those things to us. Jesus' baptism, Jesus' cross, are enough to convince us that he is the Son of God. They're enough. If that's all we had, that's enough. But the Spirit joins with them in agreement and confirms that he is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah with us. Now, Let me just make a brief side note here. I'm preaching out of the English Standard Version this morning. Many of you use that. Some of you might be using a King James or even a New King James. And there's some words missing from what I've read than what you have in your text. This is uh, what we call a textual variant in verses 7 and 8 of this. This one specifically has has its own name because this one is hotly debated. Okay, so the name of this is comma Johannium. It basically just means a short clause pertaining to John. This is the one that, the big one from John that is kind of debated. There's a lot of history surrounding these verses, what should be included, what's not included in many modern translations. I'd encourage you to look into it more and to study it more. I've got links and articles and, and studies that I could, I'd be happy to pass along to you. But if you're interested to know why the NIV and the ESV and some of the other ones don't have some of the words that are included in the King James Version, I'd encourage you to look into it more. Even the New King James Version has it in there, but it puts a big footnote uh, of uh, the issue surrounding that. I use the ESV most when studying, and I'm preaching from it today. So my guess is that unless I even mentioned it, many of you wouldn't have even known that, that there was a, a, a thing here. Um, so I'd encourage you to look into it. It's not our main subject matter for the day, and so we're going to move into verse 9. But again, if you have questions or would like more information, I'd be happy to send some your way. Look at verse 9 with me. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. This is not a complicated thing, I don't think. I don't think we are confused by this. Uh, We're willing to believe the testimony of men. And, and Matlock proves it because that in our courts of law, in our justice system, if there is an eyewitness, that is a big deal. And John says, look, if you're willing to receive that, 
then you have to be willing to receive and believe the testimony of God because his testimony is way more important. It is greater than any man's. Think about history with me. All the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. It didn't take very long for our human nature to be corrupted by sin, did it? And then show evidence of that sin. Immediately after Cain killed his brother, God came to him and said, Cain, where's your brother? And what did Cain do? He lied. He said he didn't know. So not only did he murder, but he lied to the creator in quick succession. Cain perjured himself before God about lying about his brother. And you see that through the thread of human history. Sin upon sin upon sin that resulted in the flood, that results in all kinds of judgment on Israel, that I think scripture would play out that still results in judgment on us today. That's how sin works. That's how our nature now works. But you know what? That's not how God's nature works. It's not. God would not lie. He does not lie. In fact, Scripture says he cannot lie. He can't perjure himself because there's no deceit in him at all. And if we're willing to believe people who are not only capable of sin, who but prove it regularly, who practice it consistently, if we're willing to believe them, then why are we so unwilling to believe God? Why are people so unwilling to believe what God says is true? Well, John in his gospel, chapter 3, verse 19 through 20, says the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. That's why. That's why we refuse to believe the testimony of God about Jesus found in the Bible because our hearts are dark. Our hearts do not want to be exposed to the light. You've, you've been there before. A sin of yours has been uncovered. And what do we want to do? Stuff it back down. Cover it back up. Don't let anybody know. It's embarrassing. We don't want it out. We don't want the light to shine on it. It hurts. It's a painful process. But what is necessary for us to be reconciled back to God, to walk in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, it's for those things to be exposed to the light. And that's why people don't want to believe the testimony of God about Jesus Christ. That's why we as believers have to continually be sharing that true testimony of who Jesus is. Because the world's trying to suppress it. And it's only getting worse, brothers and sisters. Now, some people won't believe what the Bible says about God because it's going to force them to admit that they're wrong. But in a lot of ways, most people are pretty free about admitting that. They'll say, sure, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. But when you really pin them down and you start saying that their mistakes that they've made, even one results in eternity away from God in hell, that's when things start to kind of hit the brakes. Well, hang on a second. I'm not Hitler or anything. I'm not some really bad person. It's okay. You know, God's going to let it go. He's going to let it slide. I'm not that bad. I'll do some good stuff later on in life, make up for it. That's the idea that we have about, about our relationship with God. 
People readily admit that they've messed up. But you know what? It's only people who have been born again, who are led by the Spirit, who will confess that they are so messed up that somebody had to die for it. And that only comes through new life in Christ, through being born again. Jesus said this. He said he was the only way, the only truth, the only way to real life. And only those who are born of him want to be in the light. That's the big difference between the church and the world. When people in the church are called out on their sin, at first it may be a struggle. They may want to suppress the truth, but eventually the Spirit of God in them reveals it and changes their heart, and they come back to fellowship with the Lord. But the world, their remorse does not lead to life. It leads to death. So if we accept Jesus' baptism, if we accept Jesus' shed blood on the cross, the testimony of the Spirit himself to convince us, then John says that we ought to believe the testimony of God himself. The Father's testimony concerning the Son is that Jesus really is God in the flesh. He really did come as a person thousands of years ago and lived on this planet. And this is a great time of year to make that connection for our kids and for our unbelieving family members. The story of Christmas is not just boxed into one event for one month of the year. Hope has come to the world through Jesus. That's the message we have to connect this season. But think about what God says about Jesus. Nowhere in scripture does God say anything else like this about any other person. He doesn't say that David was his son. He doesn't say that Solomon was. He doesn't say that Saul was, Samuel. None of these people are claimed to be the son of God except for Jesus. The father never suggests any kind of alternate way to come to him except through his son, except through Jesus Christ. It's only ever through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. I want to tackle the second sentence of that verse first. And I want us to think about this pattern of logic here. So stick with me with this. God confirms that Jesus is his beloved Son. Believing in Jesus is the only way to have a right relationship with God the Father. So Jesus is God's son. You have to believe in Jesus to be right with God. If you refuse Jesus to believe him as God's son, then John says that you're then making him a liar. It's not just that you can say, well, I, you know, I don't really believe that. You do you, I'll do me. I just don't believe that. You're actually then saying God is a liar. God is wrong. And if you make God a liar, then you're just refusing to believe in God at all. And so you can't say, no one can say that they believe in God, but deny that Jesus is his son. You cannot say, well, I believe in God or some higher spiritual being, but I don't believe Jesus is God's son. The God of the Bible cannot be believed that way. You have to take them together. Believing in Jesus as God's son is equal to accepting the father's testimony about him. And rejecting Jesus as God's son is equal to charging God with perjury. If you believe God's testimony, then verse 10 says, you now have that testimony in yourself. So the witnesses are continuing to be brought up by John here. We've got the water and the blood. We've got the testimony of the spirit. We've got the testimony of God himself. And here, the testimony lies in you as a Christian, in yourself the one that you affirmed with your mouth and then continue affirming with your lifestyle is the spirit residing in you. 
That's the assurance that we have. John doesn't say, look back to a past conversation, confession, or experience. He tells us to check out the testimony in yourself now. Are you trusting in Christ today? Do you believe God's word and his testimony currently? Where's your confidence and your hope now? Where's it resting now? If it's anywhere else but in the risen Savior, in God's own Son, then it's in the wrong place. It's misguided. If you are trusting and resting in Christ alone, there's a beautiful hope here that I want to point out. You can be assured that you not only have the Son himself, but in verse 11, John points out something else. Look at verse 11 with me. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Let's go back to the logical pattern that we're seeing again here. Active and ongoing trust in the Son is believing God's testimony. So believing God means believing Jesus, actively, ongoing. And God's testimony to Christians includes eternal life. Eternal life in His Son. If you believe the truth about Jesus being God's Son, then friend, you have eternal life. That's what John is saying. This is confidence that we have that John is, by God's grace, helping us understand this morning. If you believe the truth about Jesus, you have it. It's yours. John's clear logic continues in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So again, logically, if you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. That's pretty clear. Don't need a bunch of resources to understand that verse. You have Jesus, you have life. You don't have Jesus, you don't have life. So the Bible is teaching that you do not have to hope that you have eternal life. You don't have to wish that you have eternal life. It says that you can know it. It says that you can know you have eternal life when you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. When you have the Son this is one of the last witnesses that John calls here, the witness of eternal life. This is a witness inside of you, this gift of eternal life. It testifies to the eternal son because only he who is eternal can give you something eternal. No man can give you eternal life because they're not eternal, but the son of God, the eternal son of God can. And the beauty of this is it says that he does. He does, and it's not contingent it's not contingent on where you come from in the world, on what job you have, on what gender you are, of how tall or short you are, none of that stuff. Do you believe in Jesus? Charles Spurgeon has summed it up this way. Christ saves all those who trust him. I trust him, therefore I'm saved. Jesus Christ suffered for the sins of his people. His people are known by their believing in him. I believe... Therefore, he died for my sins, and my sins are blotted out. So God and the author John here, they make it clear. And so I want to be really clear today too. Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? Do you believe that he is God in the flesh, really come down from heaven to save? Do you believe his blood on the cross paid the sin debt that you owe, washing away all of your sin for eternity? Do you believe this? Not 20 years ago when you got your name written in a Bible somewhere. Do you believe this today? Do you believe it now? When you walk out of these doors 
and you go back to work and to the life that's inevitably hard, do you believe it then? That's salvation, this continual action of belief. And if you say yes, then you know what you have? You have the testimony of God himself within you. His gift to you is eternal life in the Son. I hope that this clears up some doubt this morning. But let me say it again. You cannot have a relationship with God if you do not believe Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he came to do. But when you do believe these things, real life is yours. Real life is yours. Eternal life is yours. And friends, it doesn't start the day you breathe your last. Eternal life starts the day Jesus breathes new life into you. It starts while you're still alive. Switchfoot has a song called Afterlife. And in that song, part of the chorus says, why would I wait till I die to come alive? It says, I'm ready now. Not waiting for the afterlife. Now look back at verse 10. We're going to wrap this up. I want you to notice one more thing with me. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this, verse 11, is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. What God gives to believers is a gift wrapped up in a gift. God's gift to us is his son. And his son gives us a gift, eternal life. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life and you can know it. This helps us see that Christ's life gives life. Christ's life gives life. Has he given you life today? That's the question that each one of us has to ask. What better day than today? We don't know the future, but God is here today, moving in our midst, moving in maybe your heart. Verse 12 is really clear. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. But if you do have him, then real life is yours now. And friend, no matter your background, no matter what you've done, whether you think it's too bad to be forgiven or not, new life in Christ can be yours today. Choose life today. Choose Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we want new life. I I think if we were to take a poll here this morning, every person would say, yeah, I want life. I want to know that I'm right before God. Lord, thank you for your word that has told us this very thing. When we believe the message about Jesus, when we believe He is who he says he is and did what he said he would do. Lord, then we have eternal life. It is a gift within a gift. And we thank you for them. Lord, I pray that that we would have life today. And if someone doesn't, Lord, maybe you're working in somebody's heart and you're convincing them and showing them, I don't have life. Lord, I, I hope and I pray that they would give themselves to you, that they would stop what they're doing and that they would pray and ask you to come in and to be their savior and to repent of their sin. Lord, and if they need help understanding what that looks like, Lord, I pray that they would seek someone out here who can lead them through that so that we would all experience life together in Christ today. It's in his name that we pray, amen.